Hello guys, welcome to another episode of the People's Podcast with myself Taj Ali and Basit Mahmood. Today we're going to be looking at lockdown, mental health and austerity. Um, and primarily we're going to be talking about how austerity has you know, exacerbated the issues caused to mental health by the pandemic. But we'll also be looking at racial inequalities and some of the stigmas in ethnic minority communities. Basit, how's it going today? Yeah, really good. I'm really excited about this episode. I mean, it's, it's an issue that affects a lot of people and some of the issues you just talked on, touched on aren't spoken about enough. Um, so I'm really glad today to be joined by someone on the front line who really has first-hand experience of these things to share uh, what he thinks around some of those issues. So today we're joined by Daniel Langley from South London, who works as a mental health nurse. Uh, Taj, do you want to kick it off and ask him a few questions? Yeah, I mean, probably the primary thing that we want to discuss is the effect that COVID-19 has had on mental health because um, if you look at the statistics in terms of rates of depression, we've seen that uh, before the pandemic, one in 10 people were suffering depression. Um, and now that's increased to one in five people. I mean, Dan, what do you think the impact has been on mental health services uh, throughout this crisis? Yeah, um, thanks for having me. And it well, it's, yeah, it's been astronomical. I mean, um, as we were talking about before the podcast started, uh, austerity obviously is the underlying reason that the, the pandemic has exacerbated mental health problems that we've already been facing in society like take for example you spoke about depression at the end of 2018 before all of this happened mental health um, antidepressant prescriptions were at an all-time high it was like 70 million prescribed in a year this is you know phenomenal and and, and now during the pandemic, they say one in six adults are taking antidepressants to the point where some pharmacies are finding it hard to actually keep up with prescribing. Mm. Um, so there's definitely been a huge impact when it came to depression. The The other impacts I've seen, obviously I work in South London, like you, you said, I specifically work in psychosis. So, um, which is supposed to be quite an uncommon <laughs> thing, but actually, uh is is it's risen so exponentially that we're we're unable as a team to keep up with it so i work in early intervention mm. my job is to go and see people having their first episode so it's their first contact with mental health services and that's risen so much that our team is unable to keep up yeah um yeah i mean from speaking to people um one of the things i mean i'm guessing you've moved to telephone consultation um, and obviously that's a lot different from actually being there physically with another person to give them advice and support. And I think what we've seen recently is there's been a lot of people who are struggling to find the help and support they need. Um, I mean, mental health services are overwhelmed, uh, but I think there's also the educational aspect to it. I don't think people are given enough sort of a guidance on where to go and how to seek help. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Like the amount of times people family members friends over this pandemic have come to me to try and help them traverse kind of the web of mental health services it's so difficult even for professionals to communicate with other mental health trusts and try and figure out what services they have available what things are actually happening in that area what hasn't been closed what hasn't been like shut down over the years you know, so many out of date websites and links that kind of lead nowhere now because maybe they're shuttered up because of the pandemic it is it is um it is hard to to get get the help um and then obviously that's not even talking about the waiting lists which i'm sure we'll talk about at some point which uh i, I don't know how to describe them i was going to say i mean there's so if, according to mind the charity mind that there's like 10 nearly ten thousand visits on their website on january 4th 
when the kind of latest lockdown was announced. Um, and I was just kind of ask in terms of people feel that there isn't enough support out there and certainly they miss that human to human contact and interaction that they would have usually got. And I know that from friends and I know from other people I've spoken to, they're a bit more reluctant to kind of seek help because they don't realize it's still available. A lot of people kind of think that they can't access it as they usually would have. What, do you have kind of concerns around how it's being, how, some of the messaging and just what people's reservations are? Yeah, and I think people have often already been quite hesitant to use mental health services anyway for lots of different reasons. And I think um, it has, uh, people are probably facing kind of their first time having panic attacks or anxiety, and maybe they feel like it's not bad enough to ask for help. I think that's a big problem as well, where like we would say to them, no, when whenever you've got any issues, no matter how big or small, how you see it, it's important and it, and it does need to be addressed because obviously the longer you leave something, the longer you avoid the concerns that you have, the, the more serious it will become in the long term as well, um, which then is, is even harder for you to get the support because of the lack of mental health beds, the lack of psychology, you know, the lack of care coordinators, et cetera. And how do you feel around, I know this, this kind of, some people might find this point confusing that the government's always said that they've increased funding in real terms to the NHS. Um, and what do you make of that argument? Because they say, oh, you know, this is politically motivated. We've advertised these services, we've pumped more money than ever before. What do you, what do you make of that argument? Oh, it's, it's always them just um, fudging the numbers. They're, they're, they're lying about the way that the stats are because it's the same argument. They always say, well, we've trained more doctors and nurses th than ever. And it's like, well, no, just the, the population's grown. More people are going into the profession. And actually, it's far shorter of what it should be at the time. So sure, it's record funding at a point because the funding has been so low for the previous five, six years, or it's nowhere near the amount that's actually required to make a difference. Like, if, you know, they're saying, oh, we've given you X, but you actually need Y. They're nowhere near the mark. So they can make a political point out of it all they want, but it, it's never enough and it never gets ring fenced. So a lot of, there's a lot of debt in the NHS because of private finance initiatives, because of um, the privatization of the NHS overall. Lot, you know, it's really been cut down to the core. And a lot of that money doesn't reach certain services, especially mental health. Mental health is like the dark horse of the NHS. It gets everything last. Like my team, so how long have we been in this pandemic now? Like we've lost count, right? We've yeah. been in this pandemic Maybe for over, over a year. Yeah. My team has only just received their lateral flow testing kits <laughs> after all of this time. How, yeah. you know, how obscene is that? I mean, we have to look at, you know, a decade of austerity, because if we look at, you know, the budget cuts um, in, you know, at mental health trusts, we've seen an 8% decrease in real terms. Um, and what that's meant is essentially, if we look at the beds, for example, I think there's one third less beds than there were over a decade ago. Um, and essentially what that means is, so for example, in Luton, we are, we have East London Mental Health Trust. Um, who organise mental health services. So they organise in Bedford, they organise in Luton, and they organise in East London. And if there's no beds available in Luton, that means that a person who's being hospitalised has to go all the way to Newham, which is, you know, what one hour and a half away. Um, then there's the travel costs and all the rest of it. Um, for me, what it is, you know, like James Adrian, the leading psychiatrist in the UK, he said that, you know, mental health, it's going to be the greatest threat to mental health since World War II, this pandemic. I mean, I just don't see that sort of, 
you know, rhetoric from the government, like this is a big issue. It's a huge issue. Yeah. And, and just to make a point on that, what you said about the beds, um, to come to, to, to expand that, uh, they'll be lucky if they get to go to Newham as well, because mm. the threshold, one, the threshold is so high that so many people that are unwell are still still at home when they shouldn't be. And secondly, the, the lack of beds means that sometimes the NHS trusts um, start using private beds and that can be anywhere. You know, even before the pandemic, people were getting shipped up to Scotland, to the to the bottom of Wales, to a lot of my patients before the pandemic were being sent to a private private place in Darlington, which is just nowhere near family. And this was before you could do teams and all of these things were set up. So family weren't having any contact. They didn't know what was happening to their loved ones. Um, and I couldn't really give them any information either because it was so hard to get hold of the private company. And you're right as well with the bed cuts. So since I think since 1999, I think it's something along the lines of like 25,000 beds have been lost overall. Like it's, it's, and it goes down and down and down each year where um, then it obviously heightens the threshold. More people are unwell for longer. People are only coming in for a short period of time and the NHS wants them out as quickly as possible. So they'll end up leaving before actually they've got the, the correct treatment that they need um, as well. Um, so yeah, the, these things are obviously uh, exacerbated by the austerity and, and they're not taking it seriously, not at all. You know, suicide rates before the pandemic um, hit an all time high in 2019. So 2019, before the pandemic had started, there was a, uh, the biggest rise in suicides for a decade, you know, I, I love to see the 2020 statistics mm. when they come out next year. I was going to pick up on something you said earlier on that basically when it comes to um, people aren't getting the adequate level of support that they need. And I remember reading something once where someone said that if I didn't have the ability to pay, I kind of, someone, uh, a journalist was saying that they'd written a piece, I can't remember who it was off the top of my head, but they were saying that if they didn't have the ability to pay, um, you know, they couldn't have afforded the level of care and treatment that they needed. Do you think, we talk about inequality in this, for example, the attainment gap in education. Do you think when it comes to mental health, there's a massive now divide between some communities and other communities who kind of maybe have access to services elsewhere? Yeah, definitely. Um, so many issues that, that people face. So like if you're of uh, like BME background, you're more likely to face high levels of anxiety and depression in the society, more likely to face bipolar or... Uh, a first episode of psychosis for a myriad of reasons uh, you know structural inequality poor access to housing worse employment you're more likely to be affected by the pandemic you're more likely to have the, the covid virus because you're an essential frontline worker who didn't get adequate ppe or you're living in overcrowded residency or, or all the other issues that come come about from it and then the mental health services that these people need um, are just ignored or they're not well funded. Like, and I'm supposed to, so I work in Lambeth, which obviously has the biggest black community in London. And I'm supposed to only have a caseload. Like, so I'm only supposed to see 15 patients. I'm currently seeing roughly double that, you know, and, and I can't keep up with it myself. So then the level of care is, is clearly degrading for the people that I look after and obviously by no fault of my own or, or it's, it's because of the, these socio-political decisions that the, the Tories and others have made over the years. 
Um, one thing I wanted to pick up on was actually, I mean, we're talking about BME communities um, and an issue that's often come up is the Mental Health Act. Um, so, you know, the process of sectioning. And we know, for example, that ethnic minority people are more likely to be t detained under the Mental Health Act. So black people are four times more likely to be detained. Um, and I think the government have proposed some reforms to the Mental Health Act, um, which they believe will, you know, reduce this uh, disparity. I just wanted to get your view on that. I haven't actually read the reform paper yet. They actually just released uh, an, an, a statement about it a couple of weeks ago that I'm yet to read. But I feel like, obviously, the, the Tories will always miss the, the forest for the trees. They're not going to be able to make the changes to law mm. that will actually change the attitudes, stigmas and structural racism in society. The Mental Health Act isn't going to be able to do that. Yeah. You know, the, the way that social workers, police and others react to black people when they're unwell can't be changed simply with reforms to the mental health act law that that's going to take a much bigger change in society for, for those things to be addressed properly mm. um and again i don't trust the conservative party to be the ones to update the mental health act law with mm. pre pretending like they actually care about the needs of the, the ame population yeah i was just going to say when it comes to just from your personal experience i mean again obviously not identifying any patients or anything like that but there was this report that was done by University of Exeter and Glasgow and um, I think it was in there's a report said that Bain men in particular had noticed a 14% so th there was like an increase in terms of so the increase 14% of Bain men sorry the, an increase of over 14% uh, when it came to decline in mental health um, whereas for white men it was six and a half percent and interestingly it also showed that when it came to uh, women the same report said that ethnicity didn't have a bearing. What do you think just some of the differences are from your own experiences, the particular challenges being men face in accessing mental health? I think obviously there's the the issue of, of the, the deprivation in which they live in is is more common. So obviously BAME people are going to face more unemployment, poorer access to housing, poorer access to education, poorer access to healthcare in general. And I think one of the reasons why BAME people also have that higher percentage is the stigma of, of um, the hostile environment, like the hostile environment created by the Conservative Party um, and their policies makes it harder for people to actually go and get support because they think that maybe that they'll be detained or deported or all, all sorts of other reasons, because when you're if you're undocumented, it makes it more difficult for you to you know access that care whilst we try as mental health practitioners to do what we can and, and not make that an issue it's obviously a wider societal issue there that, that creates that stigma and on top of that then i suppose the cultural elements of it as well because bame populations have a healthy distrust of the government because of the way that they've been treated over the last whole well, you know 400 years or so so like it's understandable that then there'll be a little bit suspicious of what type of care they're going to be offered and is it really going to make a difference to their family or are we just going to lock their child up pump them full of drugs and etc you know those arguments that are still ongoing i think you've hit the nail on the head there and even with like you know we've seen the uh, vaccine uptake and within bme communities they're less likely to take the vaccine and i think that certainly plays a part in it um you know distrust of the government um, and but I also think I mean within certain communities so for example you know in the South Asian community we do certainly have a stigma um, attached to mental health 
Um, I don't know, Basit, I mean, is this something that has happened often with your family and your situation? Uh, but it's often been the case that when we talk about mental health, it's sort of an embarrassing thing to discuss, seen as a sort of weakness. Um, and often even religion comes into it. So, for example, if someone says, you know, I'm going for depression or something, often you might get told, oh, you know, you haven't prayed or something like that. Um, and I'm thinking, <laughs> you know, we we have to treat mental health as much as the same way that we treat physical health. Because, you know, if someone sprays their, sprains their ankle, no one's going to turn around and say, well, you didn't pray and, you know, you need to pray more. I think, you know, we have the support services in this country. Um, and I think we are sometimes very hesitant um, to get the support that we do need. Um, so I definitely think we need to start talking more about mental health in our communities as well. I, I agree. I think there's a stigma and also, you know, the word pago, which is usually used to discuss mental health in Urdu or Punjabi communities, that translates as mad. So mm. the idea that you, you're mad and there's kind of studies written about that word and how it's stopped people from, from coming forward. So I think there's definitely a stigma, but I was just going to ask that. I mean, you raised something quite interestingly that I don't think is talked about enough. You... Do you believe, I mean, just from the line of work that you've been engaged in, what you've seen, that racism itself, no one really talks about how racism itself affects the mental health of ethnic people from ethnic minority backgrounds. I mean, Todd just spoke about this before how, you know, in Britain first, all the EDL turned up in Luton, where we both live. You're told as a young kid, and we were, I mean, I was young, well, Todd's a lot younger than me, though. I don't know if you know who was born. <laughs> basically, what, what used to happen was we were told you can't go into the centre of town, you're going to get your head kicked in, they're here, and our identities became problematised. But... Do you think that kind of mental, and it could be with anything, whether it's sexism or homophobia or racism, do you think there's enough done to talk about how those leave mental health scars on those people? No, definitely not, because obviously a lot of mental health services are geared towards the individual, like CBT, medication, etc. It doesn't, it often, seldom, unless you're an individual that has a political motivation, you seldom talk about those issues with your patients. Um, and it's not part of the wider conversation as much as it should be, you know. I often talk about the fact that like, so the psychosis rates in Lambeth are some of the highest in the world. It's, it's, it's phenomenal how, how big it actually is. And Tower Hamlets is, I think is number one now. Mm. Um, and, and in Lambeth, why, why is it that people from Afro-Caribbean society, uh, like uh, community are becoming psychotic more often than the white British counterparts? Mm. It's not because they're from the Afro-Caribbean background, because that wouldn't make sense. Because if, if it was so high in Lambeth and it was genetic, then it should be that high in Atlanta, Georgia. It should be that high in, in the Caribbean. It should be that high in like other African cities um, across the continent. Like it, and it isn't because they face such horrible stigma, um, such um, hostile environment, you know. And when you migrate and, and you face that hostility and you're disconnected from your own culture and disconnected from things that were important to you before, you're going to face unemployment, harassment, you know, uh, you're shoved into the poor housing, benefit cuts continuously happening, and you're more likely to have your benefits cut because of the racism of the DWP and, and individual like people that work there. Mm. So yeah, it's, a, it's, it's just so multifaceted all, yeah. all together. I mean, one thing I don't talk about often is actually that I've gone through mental health services myself. Um, and, you know, I've suffered psychosis in the past. Um, and partly that was actually because of a lot of the political activism that I was doing at the time, because I'd get so overwhelmed with everything that was happening um you know and i wasn't sleeping properly there was i went three days without sleep 
and that can trigger paranoia and all sorts. So I think definitely um, as a minority getting into politics and, you know, Bassett, I don't know how it's like as a journalist, but certainly, you know, there's always so much going on and so much negativity. And sometimes it's really, really difficult to just shut off from that sort of thing. Um, yeah. I don't know. What's your experience, Bassett? Definitely. The, so my, I had to go through CBT, for example, for anxiety. And one of the reasons, again, lack of sleep, which does not help your mental health. Um, you're feeling exhausted. Um, and I, I was really struggling to focus, concentrate. Um, and, you know, one of the worrying things is that, you know, this is our, you know, we're going through another lockdown right now. And people already with pre-existing mental health conditions. I've seen them deteriorate further. Um, and I don't know what your perspective is on this, but I've had a lot of friends tell me that, mate, this is the worst bit. I'm really, really struggling now. I didn't expect to be affected like this. Do you think there's anything in particular? Is it fatigue? Is it they're just you know sick of the situation that's really particularly affecting people's mental health like right now? Yeah, well, I think you, you both really touched on a key point as to why as well. it's beyond the fatigue. Um Obviously, the lack of sleep, the lack of diet, etc. Like capitalism, it, it, it makes an unhealthy person, right? Like the um, we 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 look at a we live in a place where the ruling class, the the people in charge, the wealthy, will destroy the planet for their own profit. So then they very little care about your health and well-being. And the majority of the things that we've been able to do for our health and well-being have all come off the back of our own selves, like Joe, the PE teacher on YouTube, and things like that. You know. It's, it's us as individuals collectively trying to, to to suffer through it together and I think yeah fatigue's one thing but it's just the constant worry and anxiety of like is my life going to get better what purpose do we have now at this point in time am I going to be employed again and if I'm not then what does my future hold for me mm. I think that kind of sense of dread is 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 just compounding with the, with the longer that it goes on for and then again then so people start sleeping less start eating less start really caring for themselves because the, the structure's gone out of the window one thing that frustrates me actually is i think sometimes especially in the younger generation um you know if a young person's suffering with mental health issues it's kind of dismissed as them being ungrateful um, you know, with social media and everything and so much information, I think young people are being more affected by mental health. And even, you know, some people might laugh at this, but even when I was 15 years old, I used to really overthink and I used to really suffer from, you know, insomnia. Um, and sometimes I used to be told to go home early from school because it was that bad. Um, and I remember going to the GP, right, with my family um, to get some support. Um, and straight away, the GP, the doctor was kind of, thinking there might, there might be an issue in the family, you know, maybe there's something going on at home. And I was like, no, I just have, you know, I just struggle to, you know, shut off. I struggle to stop overthinking. And he said, you know, are you close with anyone at home? I said, yeah, you know, I'm really close to my uncle. And genuinely he said, go to McDonald's, have a McFlurry with him and you'll be fine. Like just talk it out. And it was kind <laughs> of like, you're going through some crazy stuff at home and you just need, and it wasn't like that, you know, and that was my first experience of me going out my way to seek help. Um, and I never had any help until I got to university. Um, and I think this is an experience that a lot of people might be going through. So one of my friends, actually, um, he's studying at university um, and he tried to apl apply for mitigating circumstances. Uh, you know, he was in the process of bereavement for a family member and he'd been going through, you know, severe mental health issues. Um, and he just didn't get the support that he deserved. 
Um, and I think that for me, that is one of the key problems that we have to tackle as a society. Yeah, and definitely you brought up like that. I mean, the GP, pro like not yeah. to disparage my GP colleagues, but, yeah. but GPs aren't very well trained when it comes to dealing with mental health problems and go for kind of the quickest thing possible that comes to them because they're so overwhelmed and you you know it, 10 minutes is not long enough to to understand a child or what a child is going through you know even if that's that's a double booked appointment as well 10 minutes if you know <laughs> how quickly you actually get to see the gp you're in and out and that's why so many people end up on antidepressants so quickly because the gp finds it difficult to actually do anything substantial in that time and it's not to disparage their skill it's just their lack of time and resource and training to be able to do that and then yeah with children like obviously as a child it does get undermined like and people don't take um teenagers and others autonomously autonomy very seriously in those in those matters it always goes through the parents or you know people are too scared to have very frank discussions with teenagers about suicide and, and other really difficult topics um that people feel are very taboo especially like you said a cultural thing it can be very taboo to talk about suicide and and these overwhelming feelings and you're not being given them the um the the emotional um education that you need to be able to express those feelings openly and honestly as a as a kid which will then make it easier for you as an adult um because often we shy away from that conversation um yeah yeah <laughs> I was just saying, I mean, you mentioned GPs and kind of, but do you think this is quite a bit, bit of a blunt question? Do you think the police are adequately trained? Again, drawing from personal experience and what I've heard from people and close friends that, for example, someone's having a mental health crisis, and so you know, the first person that turned up uh, at their door was a police officer. And obviously, I understand there's concerns around safety, but from what I understand, the police officer told him that you know he became like you treat him like as a massive threat and someone's already going through a mental health crisis or an issue and then the a police officer trying to make you feel like you're a threat to people and you've done something incredibly wrong or you're like a suspect all of a sudden do you think they're, they're well trained to deal with generally no they're not trained at all and they make uh, quite bad decisions a lot of the time when they are called out i mean i'm i'm a proponent i am a big fighter for the idea that police shouldn't be involved in mental health crisis other than when there's like such a risk, like such a high risk to like life and limb, obviously then don't have any other services at the moment. So they would need to, to be involved. But for the majority of mental health crises, I don't think police should be the first port of call because they genuinely make, generally make the situation worse, especially if it's someone, if it's a person of color, like you said, they treat them as a threat. You had you know, Sean Rigg is, is, a, is a really classic case of that. You know, yeah. it's a man with schizophrenia who was treated uh, obscenely by the police. They weren't taking his mental health seriously. It, he was obviously felt under threat and, and they treated him uh, as if he was violent and aggressive. And that's it, point blank. Like they just saw him as a statistic. They saw him as a risk and they killed him. Mm. And, and even uh, here in Luton, you know, we're going, we're looking at the inquest into the death of Leon Briggs who's a black man who in 2013, you know, he was detained under the Mental Health Act and he died in police custody. And to this day, there's not been any justice for him. Um, and, you know, there was witnesses and it was on Marsh Road, which is literally down the road from the studio uh, where he was detained and people saw him crying out for help, you know, and this is the thing they they, they are th seen as a threat, you know. 
Um, if you've and got another armed police, mm. you know, you've got armed police surrounding an individual um, that not just exacerbates it, but then there's a threat to that person physically. Right. Yeah. And, and another case of that um, was Olaseni Lewis, which obviously came up with the, the, the law came off the back of what happened to him. He was upset because he was being racially abused um, in, in the mental health unit that he was mm. in. And obviously he reacted to that, uh, as you would. And then he was treated as if he was the problem. Mm. You know, he was going to be, he, they, they said to him, he was going to be moved off the ward. He was going to be like the, the problems that had happened were somehow his fault. And he felt slighted by that. Mm. The police then got involved and, and restrained him in his anger, mm. um, which was never necessary. There's so many other ways that that situation could have been dealt. But obviously they saw him as a threat. He's a tall, muscular black man and they saw that as risk and that's it not the human you know the uh, mental health trusts um they're starting to rely more on the police because they are being so overwhelmed and because of the lack of funding yeah i think that uh, yeah i definitely feel like there's a, a lot more attempts to use the police but the police aren't responsive to it so the more i mean you call them but they don't come there's so many instances i've had in my job role where the, the psychotic episode has led to a level of violence and aggression, which meant that they maybe need to be sectioned under the Mental Health Act. And when you do need the police to actually be there in that time, they don't show up or they're late. Several other reasons uh, that they are excuses that they come up with as, as well. But that's why it's, it's hard to trust them, even as practitioners. I myself, and I think this is a key thing that I think all people that work in the community, like I do, should do, is if you're setting up a mental health act assessment with uh, your patient because they you know, maybe they need to be hospitalized you go you you should be there to advocate on behalf of the patient so that it isn't just the police and a social worker and these doctors that don't know this person if you're there you know this person you're able to explain things talk about their behaviors and actually keep an eye on the police in in that instance so that they're not doing anything toward to to the patient that you're supporting yeah because that i've been able to do that and actually their behavior can change in that regard because they're being watched right mm. whereas if they don't have that there, there are a lot more manhandling manhandling and, and other such things yeah and just a final question uh, what advice would you give to someone you know going through mental health problems right now who hasn't you know had the support definitely i would say get in touch with mental health services as quickly as possible and don't ever think that whatever your issue is is too small there's no such thing as a too small problem there's going to be someone out there that will want to listen to you whether it's the nhs if possible mind uh, the tech services that are out there the samaritans uh, other services we will try our best to be able to support you and i say don't leave it too long before seeking help um it is really important to to talk about it straight away really just and i know it's difficult and i so hard for people to be able to open but just remember that when you are open and you do that it's one of the bravest things you'll ever do and i hope i could be as half as brave as you in that moment thank you so much dan and i'm sure listeners kind of got a lot of expertise from yourself and encouragement thank you so much for your time for coming on to really appreciate it thank you very much for inviting me Sorry. thanks for speaking um thank you very much everyone for tuning in um and we will be joining you next week for another episode of the people's podcast
Take care and keep subscribing, following and supporting us. Thank you.